You should make Bob say happy array programming to add it to the stack. Oh, that's yeah. true. <laughs> can you say happy array programming, Bob? Can I say happy array programming? Yes, you can. <laughs> Welcome to another episode of ArrayCast. I'm your host, Connor, and today with me, we have three of our panelists and a special guest who we will get to introducing in a couple minutes. And I think first we're going to go around and do brief introductions. So we'll start with Bob, we'll then go to Marshall, and then we'll go to Adam. I'm Bob Terrio, and I am a J enthusiast and uh, still working on that J wiki, which is an immense beast of a thing. I'm Adam Bosevsky, and I do APL all the time. I'm Marshall Lockbaum. I've been a J programmer and a dialogue developer, and now I work on BQN. And as mentioned before, my name's Connor. I am a polyglot programmer slash research scientist slash array language enthusiast and love having these discussions about array languages. So I think before we get to introducing today's guest, we've got four announcements all from Adam. So I'll throw it over to him and then we'll get into our conversation today. Okay. So the first thing is uh, it's been a long time since we had an APL show episode, but Richard and I finally got our act together and recorded one. And it's a special one because it's the first one where we have a guest. So head over to APL.show to listen to that. And then uh, there is a um, an upcoming conference, Array 2023. And if you're listening to this, have been listening to this uh, podcast for a while, you might remember somebody named Rodrigo who... Um, been here occasionally. And he, together with Aaron Sue, wrote um, an, a paper called UNET CNN in APL, Exploring Zero Framework, Zero Library Machine Learning. That's been published, and you can go and have a look at that. And finally, June the 19th is going to be a little bit of an interesting APL day because on the opposite sides of the globe, there are meetups, but don't worry, they don't clash with each other because of time zones. Time zones are awesome. Okay, so uh, let's see if I get this right. First, there is the Tokyo APLJK meetup, which is at 10.30 UTC. And then there is the Northern California APLACM a meetup and there will be a presentation by one of my colleagues on data input output uh, and that is at 17 UTC so by the time the sun goes all the way over there they will be doing APL too with all of that out of the way we will introduce today's special guest who is Robert Bernecki who I think more commonly goes by Bob Bernecki but to disambiguate we will refer to him as Robert today and most recently, I think, uh, Robert, you've been working at Snake Island Research, which is a research company. And I think, at least I know personally, one of the things that you've been working on over the years is the Apex compiler, which I'm sure we're going to talk about today. Uh, but going back all the way to, I think, the 70s, maybe even the 60s, you worked at IP Sharpen Associates, which some of our past uh, guests have worked for their, uh, for that company as well. And I think you actually worked at IPSA until they were acquired by Rotors, if I'm not uh, mistaken. But uh, that's all I'll say. I'll throw it over to you to um, introduce yourself and fill in the gaps of anything I've missed, and then we can sort of go from there. Because I'm sure there's you know 
10 or 20 different things we can ask you about and talk about today. Well, Robert Bernanke, I am commonly known as Bob, but so is my cousin, who's another Bob Bernanke. So, <laughs> and he works in higher math radar stuff. And so he's got papers out on uh, technical papers as well. So, so that's why I went back to my, my real name <laughs> is it makes, makes life easier for some, but as I said, once people get to know me, it's usually just Bernanke, just like my sister in the theater. And the Murphy Brown character is also Bernanke. Oh, yeah. Because Diane English worked with both my sister and I in the theater. So, And then she stole my name, or our name. <laughs> but that's okay. Um, I learned programming in high school. I was at uh, Hush Tech in, uh, in Buffalo. It's a, a technical uh, college prep type high school. And at the time, the this was in like say let's say consider 1962, the National Science Foundation gave grants to four high schools across the U.S. to put computers in put a computer in the high school. And these were uh, seriously giant brain machines. They're IBM 1620s that with a massive 20,000 characters of, of DRAM and no you don't need a hard drive and don't you know don't need tapes and the output is either punch cards or a flailing arm typewriter and that's how it all started for me after that I got a job at Roswell Park Cancer Hospital in Buffalo and the first thing that I with a colleague uh, minor from uh, the name Steve Dilly did was to produce a PERT implementation for for the hospital people as they because they were building a new building a new, new research building selling selling virus building and pert had just been invented by people working on the on polaris submarines and so we built one of those we built an implementation of that uh to help control and monitor the construction of that building so that was that was my first program i was a junior in high school at the time from there went out to caltech and at Caltech, they had an introductory programming project for, for people. And, and I said, well, look, I already know a lot of stuff. Let's do something interesting. So I ended up writing uh, an N-body model of the solar system. Good, good physics, good stuff for Caltech. And it was a lot of fun. Came back to, uh, to Buffalo because I didn't have any money. And... Uh, Worked, worked as they had various jobs in doing computerly operating system things there. Moved to Toronto, got a, a horrible job that that you can learn about. If you Google Bernanke Zoo Story videos, there's there's one on dialogue that I, a talk I gave on my early days at IP Sharp where I covered that. When I got to IP Sharp, I became, I was, I was hired to do ostensibly, no, nobody at Sharp ever had job, well, very few people had job titles. There was Ian Sharp and there was everybody else. A very flat management model. I got hired to do, uh, to brown thumb the Ipscobol compiler that was just on its, trying to get out the door. And in order to create models of things like data coercions and things like, oh, I've got to, I've got to change, you know, these Roman numerals to, you know, floating point to Neoform or some other, some other, you know, COBOL data types. Um, I wrote, I learned APL using the Sharp APL system and was you know, having trouble, this being my first APL program ever, it was really slow. 
And so I asked Roger Moore, who I was working for at the time. Roger's one of the uh, people who created uh, APL 360 for IBM. Roger was a very bright man, very extremely creative. And I had I had the fortune to work for him. I had worked with him. Nobody I think, worked for him. He wasn't aware that we were doing projects together. And so, anyway, so I said, Roger, I got troubles here. And we look at this thing and we keep looking at So he took a look at my program for a couple of minutes and look, it's always stuck under this a dyadic iota thing, uh, set index of uh, primitive. And he said, well, maybe it's doing a stupid in, you know, in squared algorithm. And I said, well, yeah, that's, that's what I thought. Now what do we do? And he said, oh, can you drag me off and look at the source code? And we looked at it, and sure enough, that's what it was doing. And he said, okay, fix it. And that led to the first technical paper that I ever wrote on, on high-performance computation, which, was, which I gave at uh, the EPL Congress in Copenhagen in 1973. And it's been downhill since then. <laughs> well, I, work, I worked for Sharp for 19 years and with you know, brilliant, brilliant people. I mean, you know, Ian, Ian was an incredible man and I can't say enough good things about him. Uh, Roger, as I said, was worlds above, but there, but then Ken Iverson came to, came to work for us. And um, we, and so we worked together for many years on, on design and implementation issues, mostly, mostly design with Ken and went on that way until, until Reuters came along uh, and discovered uh, how to destroy a large company, a successful company really quickly. <laughs> You said you you working in design together with with Ken. That meant the language, the core language design. Yeah, we, we got a number of papers out there, and other stuff has gotten lost over the ages. A lot of ideas that what we discarded, and that's part of the part of the adventure. Is it's like look at this, and we yeah, but it's ugly. We can't do that. Very good. <laughs> well, and correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, you you invented uh, replicate during this time, right? Yep. Um, as an extension to compress. Really? So yeah, there's an important bit of APL history there. I was literally just the the lightning talk that I gave two days ago in uh, at a conference called Lambda Days. I showed like C plus plus code, Haskell code of like filtering odd numbers. Oh yeah. And uh, and then I I was doing showing BQN as the third language, but I mean. The replicate from BQN is taken directly from APL. So, and that was the point of that lightning talk was like Haskell's way more beautiful than C plus plus. But then look at like look at the difference of the shape of the solution in like an array language because we don't have a filter function that takes like a predicate. We have a binary function that takes you know a mask and the sequence, um, which is just like food for thought anyway. So look at that, all that, how many years ago or decades ago was that, that it's influencing like a talk that I just gave two days ago in 2023. But generally that's compressed you're using. Replicate is much rarer to use. Oh yeah, I guess that's true. But like I refer to that function as replicate because like compress is just a a special case of, of replicate. Yeah. Yeah. Well, compress is a special case. It's just that Nobody realized this was a natural way to look at it for quite a while. Um, and I think that's one of the, the huge strengths of uh, Booleans in APL actually being zero and one is that once you say Booleans are numbers, like I don't think this would have happened if uh, if compress had taken true and false. 
once you take zero and one, you start thinking, well, what about other numbers? Um, so that's, it's really cool that APL allows this sort of extension, even if it is not an easy thing to come up with. We had the same thing going on with um, partition enclose, a dialogue. For many, many years, it's been taking a Boolean left arguments, uh, left argument with a one indicating wherever we start a new segment in, in the data we are partitioning. And then extending that to say, no, it's not a true false whether or not we start a partition here. It's how many segments do we start here? Yes, you can make those extensions. And one of the benefits of APL is that it does give one the opportunity to think about such extensions. I'm not convinced in general that the flexibility, we'll call it here, uh, of, of these extensions uh, means that just because we can doesn't mean we should. So in, in other words, like you're not sure it's a, a net positive at the end of the day? I'm, well, I'm talking about I'm talking about the uh, partition and close thing. The principle I use, and I know this is not widely accepted, it's not that if you can, you should, but if uh, if you can do it that way and you can't possibly do it any other way, you probably should, which uh, th that's roughly the grounds that I'm convinced about the, um, of course, of replicate, but also the partitioned enclosed thing. Yeah, I think I'd put the word elegant in there somewhere. I mean, you can always do it some other way. I think elegance just falls out. I've never seen something that was... Uh, that I remember that was, you know, the only possible extension that wasn't also elegant in its own way. Oh, but uh, today's replicate, I'm not sure if if Robert came up with this or not, but it's not just extended to positive numbers, but even to negative numbers, which insert that, which replace the corresponding element with the absolute value of the given left argument element number of prototypical elements instead. So uh, this will be complicated, but let, let's say we, yeah, sorry, let, let's give an example of this. Let's say we have the data uh, A, B, and C, just letters A, B, and C, and we do a one, two, three replicate on that. So then we get one A, two Bs, and three Cs. Okay, now, and there's an extension to, to replicate, which is that if you type one, negative two, three, replicate A, B, C, then instead of getting two Bs, you get two prototypical Bs, which would be spaces. So you get A, space, space, C, C, C. What, is, what does prototypical mean here? Meaning it's, it's, the, it's the type of that. So numbers become zero, characters become, uh, become spaces, and nested things become built up of those. I think the arrays prototype is used instead of the type of that particular element. But Really? As you can see already, there are two different ways to do it, which in my mind is not good. No, but that's that's why I'm questioning, uh, saying... And I don't think this extension was made at Sharp. I think it was uh, it was an APL2 or a, or maybe an R's thing. I think if we go back and look at, the, at the, the kind of problem that sort of primitives likes to solve, uh, if you go back and look at... There's a book that was written, I think, around 1962... Uh, by uh, an Alberta school 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 guy called a programming language, and uh, in there, Ken Iverson describes um, well. Basically, what he would do is take two. I think it was a, a conjunction because you had a Boolean mask, and then two arguments, and basically the 
where the mask was zero, it would select corresponding elements from one side, from one or one of the other arguments. And where it was one, it that, would, that's mesh, right? Oh, uh, there's mesh and mask in there. I think mask is the one I'm describing here. But the, basically, there's there's two of them. The one one requires that all three arguments be the same shape. Yeah, that that should be mask. Yeah, and I'm pretty sure that's mask. And then um, mesh requires that the the one argument has has, has as many elements as the shape of its the sum of the number of zeros in the one in the other argument and the other has, requires that it match the the number of ones and they're both they're both quite powerful and very very simple and i would say probably do 90 percent of what you need um so i ended, I ended up at sharp for nine, 19 years before uh uh reuters and i parted or sharp and i parted company thank thanks to uh Reuters deciding they didn't like, uh, well, they didn't like much of anything, (laughs) 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 but that's another, that's a tale for another day. Uh, One of the things that drove me nuts, uh, at Sharp, working, working on the design of, of mostly of, of interpreters was that we always were looking at primitives. There was very little work going on. How, how can we make this language beat hand coded language X, you know, scalar languages. And so very little work on, on uh, compilation technologies or other technologies that um, would give us uh, high performance uh, at the application level. Now, uh, Roger Moore and Larry Breed, uh, bless his soul, both Grace Murray Hopper Award winners for their work on APL 360. When I first started the chart, Larry came up and uh, and we were in Toronto, and I was watching over their shoulders. But what they were doing is saying, "Let's take this tiny, tiny." We're running forty-eight k workspaces at Sharp. That's and that was that was roomy. <laughs> that was up from the thirty-two or so thirty-six that that was the default. And they said, "Well, let's take scalar functions because uh, they're simple, and write a JIT compiler." For it, so it's, it would see a plus b, and the way the the interpreter, which had to fit into this shoehorn tiny little bit of memory on the machines, or you know, 256k, 512k. I, th- I mean, we ran a hundred user time sharing system on three and eight, three eighty four k machine. And so that includes operating system, APL interpreter, plus all the user stuff. So space was tight, but what Roger and Larry Breed did was to basically take the interesting parts of uh, of a of an interloop for scalar functions and uh, compile into the workspace itself uh, a little bit of code that would actually do the implementation of that. So instead of having uh, a function call to fetch an L left argument element, a function call to fetch a right argument element, a function call to actually do the A plus B, and then a function call to store result element, and then a function call to do loop closure. They put that all in line and got about a factor of five speed up on reasonable size arrays, let's say, you know, half a dozen elements or more. And at the end of execution of a of that a plus b, 
uh, they would discard that because there's no more room in a lifeboat, you know, for uh, to, to hang on to that stuff. So that that was the first instance that I know I'm aware of of uh, JIT compilation, at least in the APL world. I'm trying to think, like to date, what are the different compilation initiatives? Because I think this has come up on a previous episode. Like I know. Code funds, obviously, we mentioned Aaron Shu earlier in the announcements. He's, yeah. He has his GPU parallel compiler. Uh, when we talked to Charles Henriksen, he talked about the history of what at one point I think was called APL tail. Um, APL tail. Typed array intermediate language. Yeah, exactly. And that initially was like funded work to try and accelerate dialogue APL. But it ended up kind of just evolving into a parallel array language called Futhark, which was initially intended to be an IR, but it ended up being the... Copenhagen. Yeah, exactly. And then I guess I'm not sure if a single assignment C, if that counts as like... Because I know, I know that's in, that, that sort of bridges into your work with, with Apex, I think, Um little bit of history there as i said the the scalar function compiler was the the first evidence that i saw of of uh, jit work or um, of, of a jit compiler specifically in a for apl that technology uh, i used it and every, you know anybody else was working in the group anytime we rewrote or redesigned uh, an apl primitive or or of, of any sort we tended to in, include appropriate JIT code in there just because it made it made it go fast. And particularly once we got once the um, rank conjunction was in place, that kind of uh, stuff, the, the jitting this stuff would give you. That's where you got your factors of five hundred or a thousand speed up. So you know it was definitely worth. I mean, but we're still talking with this within a single primitive. You know, foo foo rank zero one of Omega. But if you had two of those or three of them in a row in a, in a scalar language, you would just naturally inline this stuff as you run when that's unavailable in an interpreter because we didn't have, in the dark ages, we didn't have room to scroll this stuff. Even in the last mainframe version of, of Sharp APL, there were architectural limits on workspace size of 16 meg. So it, it just made things difficult. But let, let me talk a bit about APL compiler. If you look at my master's thesis, if you go, which is at snakeisland.com slash ms.pdf. And we will we will link this for listeners in the description. Uh... And one of the things I discuss in there is uh, other work on APL compilers. In terms of what was happening with, with compilers uh, early on, there was Clark Wheatman at UMass had a had a compiler. Uh, the our competition scientific time sharing, aka STSC, aka APL two thousand, aka Manugistics, they developed a compiler um, as well for for the, for their mainframe product. My my father told me because I, I grew up with with APL plus, uh, so that's. It's their APL, and my father told me that uh, that um, even that PC version of it, I'm not, yeah, or or at least the APL plus two, um, had some compilation features below the hood that you couldn't at least directly observe. There might have been a way to ask it about it, but the, where it would detect loops 
and compile them on the second or third run or something like that, you would see that you're running a, a tight loop and they would compile it just that piece. I believe that APL2 would do that. Okay. I don't think, uh, sure, uh, the Sharp APL, which 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 was APL plus uh, back before they moved to APL2, yes, architecturally it was uh, difficult. So I'm not aware of anything they did. They did have a way to compile code and call it uh, directly once they once they're running under a VM, uh, which I think may have been a VSAPL slash or APL two. But you know, but these were all the glue on things. Anyway, Clark Weedman at UMass had a compiler. Mike Jenkins has worked on several uh, at Queens. Oh, Jim Weigang did a lot of work in the STSD compiler. Oh, Timothy Budd. Uh, he had uh, he had one of the early APL compilers. I think Lenore Mullen uh, did some work on stuff similar to that. Most of her con- major contributions, I believe, were in figuring out how to uh, do function composition on, on a, for arrays, and uh, her, her her doctoral dissertation covers that fairly well, I think. And that's mathematics of arrays, isn't it? Yeah, a mathematics of arrays, PhD thesis, Syracuse 88, Lenore... M. Restifo Mullen on YB Ching has an APL 370 compiler that sort of dates from the late early 80s, late 80s, early 90s. Timbot, APL compiler for the Unix time sharing system, SIG APL Qualquad night, March 1983. And I think those are, are the, the main things in that, that sort of covers, I think, the first go round on those. Then when I left Sharp and set up Snake Island Research, I decided it was time to go back and look at how to how to compile. And somewhere along the line, I'd been going to supercomputing conferences, and I met I met a couple of people who were working on a project called uh, CISL. Stephen Fitzgerald, John Feo, and a few other people, uh, mostly from mostly from Lawrence Livermore and somebody from uh, U Colorado Boulder. And CISL uh, stole a lot of ideas from APL, and it made some very interesting contributions to functional array language design and implementation. For example, they had they had functional control structures, so loops were functional, and conditional expressions were functional. And this and this turns out to both make comprehension of code much simpler, and it also turns out to make compilation of that code much simpler. Similarly, about the same time, there's some people at IBM. Oh, Ron Citron, there we go. Popple, APL, uh, ACM Symposium, Principles of Programming Language. Uh, Citron, Gene Ferranti, Barry Rosen, Mark Wegman, and F. Kenneth Zadek. An efficient method for computing static single assignment form. Uh, that's January 1989. Now, with static single assignment is brilliant, a brilliant idea. It basically takes everything that you've wanted to do. Uh, it's okay. Let's let's compile some APL, and then you see something like I gets twenty three, and then down two lines, uh, or I could say out of five, then two lines further down it says I gets quote A B C D. Now, under traditional compiler, this goes oh man, and so you end up. <laughs> You end up compute, having to compute live ranges and, oh, what's the type of this variable name on at this point in time? And what, what static single assignment does is dead simple. It basically renames everything so that any variable appears on the left side of assignment once. And 
if all you got is a basic block of, of code, you know, that has no no funny control stuff going on of loops or, or conditionals or anything, uh, that's that's trivial to do. But it and it gets but it does get tricky when you introduce loops and things like that. And it makes compilation of efficient code trivial. And if you look at compilation papers of the day that deal with things like, oh, the live ranges of, you know, when does this variable become alive? When does it become dead? And so on. It's horrible. If your compiler operates in static single assignment form and you start off by converting the program you want to compile into static single assignment form, everything gets dead easy. For example, the value error can all be detected statically, period, end of story. Better than that, you know exactly when a variable becomes dead and, and can be deallocated. And that, that's just sort of two of, the, two of the simplest aspects of it. So, you know, it's good stuff. And, uh, and IBM Research is to be credited for, and, and Citron and company in particular, are to be credited for brilliant insights. And one of those things just makes life much easier. And to give some context to that, I mean, this is now used in... Um... I know it's used in GCC and Clang. I figure it's used in pretty much every modern compiler now. So it's widely accepted technology these days. It's used in every modern compiler written since around 1990. And even old compilers written around 1990. And the, and the price that you're paying for that is just the extra space for creating these new variables with the, you know, essentially not replacing space, but just creating new space for those variables. Well, in fact, you may be creating, I mean, this is all going on at compile time. Static single assignment is strictly a compile time deal. As I said, you know, you know exactly the range of this variable's existence, which you know when it comes into existence, and you know when there are no more references to it. And so knowing it's dead, any advantage that you might have gotten from playing games with, you know, namespace, et cetera, is a non-issue because it's already solved and you don't have to think about it. So it's up to whatever memory manager you're using to figure out how to do it. Memory manager may say, oh, looky, I, I know he deallocated this thing, but I'm just going to reuse the space. That's a runtime issue that has nothing to do with the problem of, of the source code. And generally when you're working with, like if, if your compiler is optimizing or whatever, and it's working with this SSA code, um, the variable names are not represented as strings. They're represented just as numbers. Um, and what you can all do also is uh, just number your va variables in the order they appear. So when you define each variable, you don't even have to give its number. You just say, make a new variable. And then everything else refers to them in the order that they're given. So it's pretty compact in if you use it as an intermediate representation too. Yeah, there, uh, nobody looks, nobody stores uh, identifiers as identifiers in in any more you'll have them like somewhere else if you need them at runtime there's always there's always a symbol table yeah anyway, what I was, I was talking about sisal and i got sidetracked sorry um now sisal is an interesting acronym it stands for streams and iterations in a single assignment language and the semantics of sisal the source code is single assignment. So they, they realize the benefits of single assignment. And like with SAC, which is single assignment C, uh, both languages have single assignment in their name, but neither one of them actually requires that your code, the source code be written as single assignment. So it's a frill. 
you know, it's an ass, it's it's a compilation of compiler technology that has nothing to do with how you actually write programs, and it shouldn't. You know, that's the kind of stuff that should be buried, uh, just like memory management should be buried, and uh, allocation deallocation should be buried, and interprocess communication should be buried. None of these things should appear in source code. All they do is cause problems and bugs. At any rate, so. I'd, I'd run into these guys. I was at some supercomputing conference, and I ran into Feo and company, and they were showing off some of their the stuff they could do with with, with Sisal. And I said, well, "This is interesting." So I started. I, I sort of was partway through design and implementation of an APL compiler. But there were two th- things that happened. One was the static single assignment stuff, which let me get rid of all kinds of bad things in the code in the in the compiler, and the other was that uh, Slicel was getting very good performance out of a lot of relatively simple optimizations, like notably loop fusion. And if you think about, uh, and if you want a good example of this, there's a signal processing uh, benchmark in, in my master's thesis called log D or variance on log D. And what those do is it's take a signal, do a first difference on it uh, to compute the the DELs. It's measuring digitized microphone data and computes the differences, scales it, clamps high and low values, and does some magic there. And it's really simple, but doesn't run, you know, APL runs about as fast as you say, oh, okay, well, I'm going to take all these things and I'm going to do the first difference and then I'm going to clamp the high and low values and scale them somehow. And if you look at the code that Slicel was generating, it basically took this collection of uh, first difference and then all these scalar functions. What that showed, I think you can see it even in, in the in the compilers and my master's thesis, was that every time you, every time you're able to fuse two, two adjacent primitives or even non-adjacent primitives, you effectively double the speed uh, compared to an interpreter. And again, back to uh, section 2.1. Section 2.1 is why are APL interpreters slow? And then I show figure 2.1 gives a distribution of APL interpreter CPU time. And for now that's for one selected sharp APL benchmark called, or not a benchmark application, called a blend, which is used for borrowing and lending of securities. And that was extremely well designed and extremely well implemented by uh, the APL programmers who wrote it. And as a result, that spends nearly half of its time in the execute phase. But then syntax analysis is 16%. Conformability checks, you know, are these two arrays the same shape, uh, is 22%. Memory management is 13%. And I think that's about as good as it tends to get in it, even in today's interpreters. Uh, Clark Weedman did some work at UMass, and he, he was looking at 13 different benchmarks. And he, and he, he shows basically similar things. In his examples, the syntax analysis is, is 50%, typically around 50% of uh, CPU time. Conformability checks are up close to, say, 15 to 20%. Memory management is just over 20%. And execute is occasionally hops over 20%, but is usually down around 10%. So, you know, we did similar things at Sharp, and the results are, are always the same. So it, let's say you, you do all you can to improve the speed of a single primitive. The best you're going to do is maybe a factor of two across the interpreter, whereas because you can't get rid of, and I'm talking just, I'm not talking JIT now, I'm just talking straight naive compiler, um, you're not going to get rid of 
syntax analysis, you're not going to get rid of conformity little checks. And it's only rarely that you can do anything about memory management due to things like saying, oh, this is a temp and I can do this next operation in place. But if you combine two primitives, all of a sudden, effectively, what you've done is eliminate all those overhead operations, syntax analysis, conformance checks, memory and memory management for whatever primitive you're able to eliminate by embedding it in its elemental computation or cellular computations in the other primitive. And so you do three, put three primitives together while you've just made that application three times as fast and so on. So loop fusion in all its glory is really good stuff. And SAC, no, Sunboda Schultz and uh, Clemens Grell and a bunch of other notables have a research compiler called called SAC, single assignment C. And it basically is a it's a functional uh, a functional subset of APL with an functional in the sense that uh, you can pass array arguments uh, by value to a function and you can get back a bunch of array results by value. And the language is purely functional. You don't have to write it in a functional style, but the first thing it does, of course, is convert it to static single assignment form and preserve that through uh, the compiler. And the magic, the most magic thing about SAC is something that I think was created by Bodo and, and Clemens Grelk, and I'm not sure where the brainstorm arose, but they have something called uh, with loop folding. And with loop folding is an optimization that, that sort of think of think of uh, think of loop fusion on steroids. The the with loop is a sack uh, a sack construct that lets you describe creation of an array piecewise. So, for example, if you write a plus b in in sack, look at that; it's a plus b. Uh, but you can also you can also do it element wise and it'll generate essentially the same code as a primitive would generate. The place where it starts to be magic is something like, uh, think of, oh, I'm going to do a, a rank, rank to filter on, a, on image data, and I'm going to look at, let's say, a dust marker, eliminate the, the, the dust motes in this image. And what you do is you compute each, a three by three, say, take a three by three subsets of it, and compare those to their neighbors and where they're set each element to the average of its neighbors or something. And the, the dust tends to disappear. But what tends to happen on that kind of thing is you, you have to treat the edges of the image differently than the middle part. You know, the middle part is like, oh, look, I can just I can just take this and shift this way, this way, this way, this way. But what do you do with the edges where, where instead of having, say, nine elements to look at, you've only got six or four what SAC does, the SAC with loops let you, lets you describe the treatment of the edges or different pieces, subarrays of the resulting array uh, differently, but they're all subject to the same uh, array with loop folding optimization. And it's pretty spectacular. Um, something where you end up writing like a 3D uh, relaxation that you, like you might use in a heat distribution in, in physics. If you write that naive APL, you probably end up something like 30 pieces of code that deal with, okay, well, here I'm going to do the main part, and then I'm going to 
extract this part and glue that in. You know, so you're gluing in all these corners and edges and things, and it, it just doesn't look very pleasant. And what Bodo's stuff, you would, if you translated that into, into SAC, um, such as what Apex does, you would take those 20 some pieces of code and it would glue them all together and you end up with one with loop. Now it would have inside it, it would have all these pieces, but they're glued together in a, in a functional, uh, fully data parallel manner. And there's only one array allocated to do all this stuff. So it's not like having to go and say, okay, well, I'm going to extract the left-hand column uh, from this array and allocate space for it. And then this other one, and then I'm going to allocate the final result and glue these pieces in. Uh, it all gets built once. And so you end up with one allocation instead of you know, 20, 20 couple. So that for with loop sort of ends up as a bit of a, an abstraction. It basically, it provides a layer that does all that. You don't have to be concerned with how it does it so much. That's correct. And the, the magic about that, or, or one bit of magic about it, is that with uh, SAC started off looking suspiciously like APL. And, uh, uh, and it had... Uh, it had primitives in it to do. Oh, I'm going to be. A, I'm going to do a rotate. I'm going to do a take and drop. I'm, and then somewhere along the line, I think I think it was Bodo, but I'm. But you'd have to talk to the, the to him and Clemens and maybe Stefan Herhood about it. Looked at it, and, and of course, what would happen is, and they had they had with loop folding at this point, and but it was just you know a shiny new kid on the block. And so you'd write this code, you'd take some relatively honking benchmark of some sort of application of some sort, and it would just optimize the piss out of it. It would it'd be wonderful. But what you would see is it would go zoom, and then it would say, oh, look, a rotate. And then it would call this library routine to do a rotate. And then execute more highly optimized code. And then we think, oh, here's a take and a drop. And so it starts to sound suspiciously like an APL interpreter, doesn't it? Except for the, except the, with, without the optimizations. And so it, what, what they tried is, he said, okay, well, I know we got, I know we got these take, drop, rotate, all these primitives in the language. Let's just pretend they don't exist. And we'll create a standard library that includes the primitive definitions you know, take, drop, rotate, all those things in SAC code using with loops. And they're not compiled. They're just like, in, just like a standard library, they're include files. And so all of a sudden, you take this code and those that's take, drop, uh, rotate things, all, the, all those are effectively, in, well, they are in source, source code again, and they're exposed to the compiler. And so it's able to apply optimizations across the board and there is, you know, there's no stuff about getting, copying your array off to some library function that probably doesn't work anymore. And, and it's, the results are impressive. So you, you've got at that point, your primitives expressed in single assignment C. Mm -hmm. And then when you do your optimization, it can take that single assignment C and optimize it and just clump it all together. Yeah. And the, the thing, and this is where the tyranny of the implementer 
is finally destroyed. And, you know, for decades now, APL programmers have been at the mercy of the language designer and implementer who says, it's going to work this way. And if you don't like it too bad, I, I think, you know, the uh, Adam's uh, comments about the definition of, of the function, function, and, and, sorry, end close, partitioned end close is a good example of this. It's like you get, here's, here's the flavor of, of function we're going to give you. And that's all we're going to give. If you don't like it too bad, you'll have to do it by hand. Whereas with single assignment C, you don't like it. Well, you, you write your own version. You, know, you pick up their version of the standard library or that element of the standard library, and you write your own. You, I wouldn't recommend giving it the same name because we all know that way lies madness. But you create your own tiny standard library, and you use that instead, and you will get performance identical to the best performing thing you can because it's all it's all exposed to the optimizers. Good stuff. I recommend uh, take a good look at Spindle Assignment. See, it's got some good stuff in it. So this is, I mean, I've been just absorbing everything you've been saying, and uh, this is all pretty awesome because, I mean, Marsha will know. <laughs> I've I've made this argument many times on this podcast before of that that I'm surprised that this. Uh, is not implemented in more of the popular array languages that like, for instance, I think if you do some simple expression, like a two times one plus some array, you end up necessarily, if I'm not mistaken, inside of dialogue, APL, J and BQN, uh, a copy or like an allocation each time you do those two scalar operations of two times and one plus. And and I'm not, I'm not sure if Adam, Marshall, Bob, you can all correct me if I'm incorrect about that. And actually, it, tying into this is uh, I believe it was Oleg who I was talking to at KXCon who was on the KX core team. And I didn't actually uh, – Oleg is, is just an individual that works for KX on the uh, uh, Q executable. And I he told me to talk to Pierre who's another person that works on the um, uh, KX core team. And Oleg said it, it wasn't his um, sort of. Uh, I don't. I don't think. I'm not even sure if any work has been done. But Oleg says that Pierre likes the idea of having like multiple types in a array language, such that you know, because right now in Q it's the same thing. If you do like a two times one plus a multi-dimensional array, um, you get you know, a copy each time or an allocation each time you do each of those scalar operations. But if you had some secondary array-like type that wasn't exactly array, but it was some kind of stream that you knew like you technically didn't need to materialize uh, a new array each time and you could fuse things together, um, which is commonly known as like stream fusion and other languages and libraries, like you could get these kinds of uh, performance increases. Anyways, Ramble, 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 monologue over. My question is, is like, so it sounds like, you know, Sisal, uh, stream iteration, single assignment language, uh, single assignment C, SAC, and Apex are, you know, three technologies that implement this. How come it hasn't, it, like, or maybe there's no answer and it's only op opinion after this, but like, how come this idea hasn't been more widely adopted um, in, in like the sort of more popular uh, array languages, if you will. Is there, is there like a reason for it or is it just, it hasn't caught on? This is all, it's all about fashion. It's just not fashionable. 
you know, like in the last year, AI has become fashionable. It hasn't changed a whole lot in that time. There have been some, you know, point your finger benchmarks and things like that. And I took a course from Jeff Hinton, who was one of our more recent Turing Award winners uh, at U of T on, on uh, neural networks. Uh, so that when that was that would have been the '90s because I was working on my master's thesis then. So that you know that stuff, the fundamental ideas, you know, were there then. Uh, certainly, a lot of it you know, is is Jeff Hinton's work, but the idea is the same. Uh, and so here we are, and it only took about uh, 30 years to get here. So you know these overnight sensations are overnight sensations if you wait enough nights i mean in uh in the uh like ai summer if you will defense at the time that the um like ai papers were being published like the compute necessary to actually like you know run neural networks and convolutional neural networks and stuff didn't really exist uh and then in the late 90s and early 2000s the compute was being developed like companies by NVIDIA, who I happen to work for. Not back then. I was in like elementary school back then. But uh, <laughs> um, and and so like that did contribute a little bit. Whereas I'm not sure if there's a reason, or I'm not sure if yeah, like if, there, if there's a reason why it's just that this wasn't the way things were done sort of back in the day when array languages were first being implemented. Well, you um, can't just run. APL code directly through one of these compilers, right? There's, um, I guess, uh, APL tail is the closest to doing that, but they've all got restrictions, including code defense. Um, and that's in ahead of it, or, well, code defense is, is a fairly different model, but, um, I mean, I think a lot of the problem is that you can't, uh, you have to write things like maybe types, maybe shape, shape declarations and so on that, uh, for the compiler to handle it. And um, in my view, the performance of the language is not important enough for most people to justify doing that. They say, well, I'll use the easiest APL, the one that works most nicely, um, and I won't worry about performance that other approaches might have. Uh, first of all, back to one of Bob's, uh, sorry, Connor's comments. Uh, you said two times one plus some rank three thing. Uh, and the implication I got, if I understand correctly what you're talking about, with KX is that that appears in the source code. And if so, whatever, whatever magic you need, it doesn't belong there. Now, so, sorry, I didn't mean to imply anything about like KX's implementation. Uh, I, I just, I think K fits in, sorry, Q fits into the same group of J dialog APL and BQN in that uh, like two allocations uh, happen in the background. Whereas like, you could technically have a compiler or even like a sophisticated enough interpreter that could uh, like fuse those by just recognizing that you have basically two scalar operations together. You can get APL 360, uh, which predates, you know, is, predates my joining sharp. It had, it would, it's something like your two plus one times or two times one plus rank, a rank three thingy. That would that would all assuming assuming that uh, rank three was of appropriate type like integer or better 
if it was Boolean, we're in trouble. But if it's if it was integer better and had enough room to store the result, it would just do it in place. Unless you'd given rank three a name, in which case it couldn't do it in place. But once you do the one plus, there's an unnamed temp, and then two times it's going to do it. So there is a, you know, there's existing APL interpreters are fairly, fairly good at, at reusing temps when when possible. But all these things, the idea of I say, oh, here's a temp, I'll, I'll just, I'll use, I'll do it in place instead of allocating space to the result and so on. That takes time in the inner, in the, not in the inner loop, but at the, at the interpretive level loop, when it's going to say, oh, here, I'm going to execute this here plus primitive. Oh, is it working on a temp? Yes, no. That decision in any, you know, in, in any naive interpreter, that decision has to be made on every single plus operation you do. So a lot of these things that people say, oh, we can just do this. Well, just do this has the effect of slowing down every single operation in the every single application you run. It's not just as simple as saying that. Um, most modern, almost all, any APL interpreter I've had my feet in, I would, I made them, uh, I made everything, uh, APL 360 didn't, but but I made sure APL use uh, reference counting throughout. And that means that things like this, can I do this in place, become simpler. Because you don't have to say, oh, is this a named doodah? You don't care whether it's named or not. If there's only one reference to it, you can do it in place because that means it's not named. But what you end up having to do is is to do reference count maintenance. So when you when you call when you call a primitive, you have to increment the reference counts on its left and right arguments. And on the way out, when you exit, you and when you sorry you allocate the result, you've got to set its reference count. And when you depart the function, you've got to decrement the reference counts on what were the arguments to those things. And when any of those reference counts go to zero, you can deallocate the deallocate that. I think Jay, Jay Fode has did some very nice work on his on his JIT compiler for um, for dialog APL. And now what he's done is he doesn't he doesn't fix it, he doesn't eliminate any of those things. But what he did do is eliminate the syntax analysis overhead. He still has to call in this two plus two times one plus rank three thing, he was still, you would find in the generated code, you would still find calls to a, a generic plus routine and a generic times. So uh, there's not going to be loop fusion happening there. But back to the reference count thing, one of the guys work at uh, on the SAC project had a uh, some very nice work on implementing reference counts. And what he did is, you'd see, here's a patch of of, of of a, of a basic block that is a, a piece of code that doesn't have any branches in, in or out of it or other or other other uh, control structure stuff. And he would look at the code and it would say, oh, increment the reference counts on this, decrement the reference counts on this. And, and, and then what he would do is, if you saw something like increment the reference count, decrement the reference count, increment, and basically he would, within a basic block, you know that no, nobody's going to be entering or leaving this block. So you can statically look at it and optimize the reference count. So when you when you enter it and say, okay, the net difference in reference counts 
when I enter this block, between the time I enter it and the time I leave it, is that you know this thing disappears or uh, this, this reference count goes to zero. These ones are the same because it's something where we increment it, decrement it, increment it, decrement it, and so on. And he just eliminates those reference counts entirely. And so that speeds things up. It's not going to make much difference in, a in an interpreter, but even in, even in Jay's compiler, it could help if it was able to inline primitives. And the, the way to do that, I have some ideas for doing that that I'm going to mention to... Well, they're pretty obvious ideas. Yeah, I mean, the tough thing with that is that you have uh, the way it's written in a typical APL interpreter-like dialogue is that you have, you know, this one big function that does plus or does sort or whatever, and it's got all the reference work built in. So you have to somehow split out all of these the functions to do that, and you have you want to keep the uh, the put together functions operating at the same speed too. So that gets kind of tough. Yeah, you don't do it that way. Yeah. So, so what you do is really simple. You you go back and you refactor the interpreter. And in doing so, I expect you would find one advantage of refactoring the interpreter is a fair number of very long-standing bugs will emerge. Because what you would do is instead of saying, okay, here's this thing that does... So let's just say it does all scalar functions or something, or does or does uh, some you know integer scalar functions maybe. Do the conformance checking, do, 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 do. and so you rip out the conformance checks and make those macros or function calls. It really doesn't matter how what it looks like under the covers. Uh, what you do is you make those table driven something so you can get commonality across. And, and a standard way of doing it across the interpreter rather than, oh, it's Tuesday, I'm implementing transpose, I'll do, I'll do my conformance checks this way. You know, that way lies madness. Um, similarly, with a reference count, the way to do that is to rip it out and make them table-driven. But I mean, this is going to introduce some overhead, right? When you're looking up... No! No! That's the whole point is you get rid of overhead. Well, how? <laughs> why, why is it cheaper to look into a table to see what you're doing with reference counts than to just write the code? Because the table may generate macros. Well, we have macros. The point is to make these, these common things you must do at each primitive. You, you pull those out and you make them the same across the interpreter. I say the same, I mean the, the same semantics. What it looks like underneath doesn't matter. But by making them by making them the same, I mean, yes, there are utility functions for this that are usually going to get inlined. They may not be functions. It doesn't matter. The point is, you want to expose them to simple optimizations within the interpreter. And so, for J. Fode's example, well, here let's let's because we're already compiling stuff already, so we're just looking at things a little closer by separating out the, the, cell, the cell computations, the elemental computations that produce cells, cells of the result. We can then deal with those separately from the issue of reference count maintenance, conformability checks, and so on. And so we've got eight in this two times one plus plus rank three example, those conformability checks would be lifted, but that doesn't matter. The key is that what's going to happen inside is that the, the cellular code that, that implements the, those primitive computations of, of plus and times can be inlined 
uh, in, in, in a JIT compiler. They can be inlined. Um, and then, then you have, you basically have about 90% of the benefit of a full all signal dancing compiler, but the ability to run it in a JIT environment. But what it does require is that somebody sit down and take their lumps by looking at every single primitive and mapping them into a common form. And that consistency is what gives you the power to, to then optimize because you're dealing with the same situation with each different primitive. That's great. You don't say, oh, this one, oh, this one. Well, I'm sorry, but dialogue APL is not a very consistent language. No, I think that's, I think that's what uh, Robert's saying, is that it, isn't, it would be improved if it was more consistent. Yes, it, it absolutely would. Everyone at Dialogue agrees with this, I believe. Uh, <laughs> nonetheless, uh, various applications that are, you know, transacting billions of dollars and uh, running people's medical information would break, and uh, that would that would be pretty bad. So, it will remain inconsistent. Yeah, that actually makes me wonder about some of the reasons that there hasn't been a lot of work with compilation. Is you end up with legacy systems that people are relying on that are essentially interpreted maybe with some JIT and things sprinkled through it. Yeah. Well, in APL and J, not having a context-free grammar, um, like J's compiler is a bytecode compiler. Um, a bytecode compiler on APL is very tough. Uh, one on K or BQN, where we have a context-free grammar, we just take that for granted. Um, that's always what we do at the whenever we see a program immediately compile it to bytecode. We don't have to worry about syntax again. Um, I see JFold's compiler effectively do, does that for all practical purposes. Yeah, yeah, that's the point. Um, but it's much harder when you're working with a syntax that fundamentally, um, like if you have, you know, A, B, C written, the meaning of that depends on, you know, what's the type of A when you get to it this particular time, what's the type of B and what's the type of C. So, Right, and that's why, and that's why I was talking about, about, uh, Static single assignment. Sorry about uh, basic blocks, you know, and that's why I think Jay's Jay's stuff already handles all that, or I, or I believe it. I believe it handles it. If it doesn't, it should. Well, I think it just protests if it cannot figure out what you mean or what things things will always mean, which is fine. And you say it can't compile it. So if you've got this split up form where you're doing conformability checks and reference counts outside of the functions. I mean, that's great for if you're JIT compiling all, but um, if you're not JIT compiling, how do you get the primitives to run at the same speed? Do you just uh, always JIT compile or what? Uh, no, um, you could. I mean, uh, pe people have done it. Um, just this is a, a little Gedanken experiment here. Um, let's look at one primitive. You'd say, okay, here's how this primitive does its reference counting. And, uh, we, and we, like, we like the approach it's taken there. So I write a, I write a increment reference count macro, and I write a decrement reference count macro. And the semantics, you know, since it's a macro, we can change it anytime we like. And then you replace, but then then you put that in the interpreter, and it should, with any luck, it'll generate the same code as it does now. And then all you do is you look at every other uh, primitive on the system and see if they use the same pattern of 
increment or decrement reference counts. And this is, you know, it's not fun. It's, it's just, there's a lot of shuffling going on. Yeah, I mean, so basically you've got two copies of every, of every primitive now. You've got- um, No. One that's inlined. No, no you've got, you got a macro. The macro doesn't exist in the compiled interpreter. <laughs> what? What does the object code look like? The point is you, you can refer to, you know, if it's going to be JIT, you're going to take the, that reference count stuff and put it, you know, probably build a table of those or table of pointers to the, to the reference count stuff. For the existing interpreter functions, they will use that same, uh, that same macro, but it'll generate, it'll generate code within the interpreter to do it. The other one is being used only by the JIT compiler. But if we were to generate the same, you know, if we do this for, you know, the conformance checks and the cellular computations and so on, if you do it within the interpreter, it's going to generate one set of code. If you do it right, the JIT compiler will generate identical code. Now, all you have to do is apply that to every other function. This is a JIT compiler that's making object code for the primitive. It doesn't use the the stuff that you've written in C or that's right. What's it supposed to do? What, what do you mean this the whole interpreter is written in C? So I don't understand your point. Like would the JIT compiler use code from the functions that you have written or would it just say, all right, here's um here's you know reverse of sort. I have some high level description of reverse and of sort. And from those I will build um machine code, I guess. Because implementation is an implementation decision. I don't think it matters. The, the point is you want to be able to, to find, there's two, two goals here. One is to establish a, a way of, of a formalization for all primitives, or, or at least the vast majority of that can be used both by the interpreter, you know, at, across the interpreter, and by, by Jitli code. One of the main, there's several things we want to do, but one of the main ones is the ability to do loop fusion yeah. and extract. And so, uh, so that you can grab pieces of cellular computations and, and do compositions on those in, within the JIT compiler itself. Yeah, I mean, I think that's pretty tough to do with the forms that Dialog has because it's got all sorts of... Um... That's why I'm talking refactoring. Well, there's refactoring and then there's rewrite. I'm trying to describe a way of refactoring this that preserves the existing interpreter behavior where possible. And if not where possible, where it's not possible, the question you have to start asking yourself is, now, why, why is this one different from that one? And there may be a good reason for it. Often, as I say, it may have been maybe, you know, this guy was off on, on holidays and just came back and isn't quite alert yet. Well, all right. So let me let me describe some of the more issues. Like I don't agree that um that reference counting and uh, conformability checks even gets into like the issues at all. Let's let's put that aside because I think they are I think I think they're critical issues for, for an interpreted language. Well, so one thing that dialogue does is if you're taking um if you're taking a compressed call of A compress B. What it will do is check the sum of A total, um, and it will decide based on that whether it should use a branching sparse compress uh, method 
or a branchless method that's actually vectorized. Um, and so, like, how would you, that's not something you can fuse because you need to know that the entire sum, you can't fuse and get the same behavior at least because you have to know the whole sum to decide which of these to do. So what you're saying is you make a conscious decision. Now, for, for compress and replicate, you always have to know the sum of left argument. Yeah. Um, or maybe the sum of the absolute value of the left argument in the replicate, extended replicate case that, you that was described earlier. Whether you do that or not is a separate issue from cellular execution. Well, I mean, you look, you, you can clearly, you, it's, you can clearly say, okay, this guy's out of scope. It's, it's too complicated. We don't know how to do it in, in the JIT compiler. Today, today, the, the JFO JIT compiler uh, works that way. It just says, I don't know how to do any functions. <laughs> and so it always calls, just blindly calls them. But what you can do is maybe there's other functions that are better behaved than and what you can. You know, the whole idea is do what you can when you can. Well, but that seems like a problem. So if you've got, if you don't implement the same functionality, then you've got situations where uh, in some cases, the JIT compiler is faster because it's compiling. And in other cases, the interpreter interpreter is faster because it has, um, it has access to other methods um, that you might not get in the compiled case. So, I mean, if you have some application that, you know, really depends on this sparse replicate, then it could actually slow down when you compile it. Um, and how are you supposed to figure out which one to use? Slow down the compiler or slow down the interpreter? The compiler would be slower in this particular case, you know, as an example. As I say, if you know, if you know that's the case, then maybe you don't want to compile it. But if you don't know that's the case, and you do compile it, and then your code ends up slower. Then don't do that. <laughs> this is really this is really simple. It's like if you got a thing where, geez, the interpreter can do a better job here. Well, maybe you just you know you have a bit that says, don't even think about compiling this. Well, but if we, what if that's like seventy five percent of the interpreter? I mean, that's one small example. There are a whole lot of things that do. Then you learn something, haven't you? And this is why I said you know you refactor this stuff, and by looking at the problem. And separating these things and making it uniform, we solve these problems. And you can then identify which things you really don't want to comp compile. I mean, for example, I don't, there is rarely, I won't say always, but there is rarely any benefit in inlining or compiling or jitting uh, matrix inverse in my, in my humble estimation. I mean, even something like sort that's not that slow, um, it's a... Uh... It's there's hardly any overhead in going into the sort relative to actually doing the sort. And what's your point? I was agreeing with you. Okay, thank you. <laughs> well, as much as much as uh, we, I feel like we could continue this on for another hour. Uh, this is probably what happens when we we bring someone with implementation experience, and we have people with implementation experience. The conversation could just go on for for eight hours. I, we've blown past the hour mark, and I think. I mean, on my, on my recording device, we're we're past the hour and a half mark as well. I'm not actually sure when we when we started officially starting recording, um, but yeah, we'll, we'll probably have to to start to wind this down. I mean, we'll make sure to put links to um, 
you both your master's thesis, or not both, all of the things mentioned, your master's thesis, CISL, uh, single assignment C. Um, and I, I think probably the most in question, important question to finish on, um, Robert, is if folks are interested in taking the Apex compiler uh, for a spin, is that something that people can do if they go to some sub site of Snake Island Research, or is it uh, is it currently still in an unreleased phase? I'm still looking for the tire pump. The, the tire pump, which is... If you want to take for... it for a spin, you need, oh. you need, <laughs> you need the tires inflated. I was like, is, do, do people need to come and bicycle to a certain place? Or I completely missed the uh, <laughs> the analogy there. There's a Git, GitLab. Apex is on GitLab somewhere under the, I think it's under the MIT license, but don't. The compiler was written in in early 90s and uh, on, and it had to run a sharp APL PC with its 208, 200K workspace and and no, we didn't have, what do you mean hard drive? There's a lot of stuff that, you know, talk about refactoring. One of the things I'm, I'm going, to, going to look at is, I'm going to look at Aaron's uh, co-defense compiler and uh, try and produce a co-defense for Earthlings <laughs> uh, view of that. I, I, uh, do beware that co-defense will change from under your feet uh with regularity i'm aware of that that's what the man said uh, <laughs> met the go man month fred brooks he's already rewritten twice so. <laughs> he says, plan to build a prototype you will anyway i'll let people know when i get apex back to the point where where it's running reasonably well now, part of my problems today are with with sac problems in in uh, SAC treatment of specializations and other things, and others are all my own doing. So when I when I get those settled, I'll, I'll rattle people's cage on it. But two other things I want to mention are, if you look at at CUDA, and if you look at um, you know, PyTorch, uh, and the various uh, AI languages that are out there they are really unpleasant they're they're primitive you know if you look at like a page of of cuda function calls it's it's as bad as as a as a windows template library or something most of these functions aren't implementable as, as like one or two characters or apl oh if you look at oh here look at there's a paper on apm on the on acm uh dla.acm.org slash lots of other numbers and things. Convolutional Neural Nets and APL by uh, Martin Sinkeroffs and Rob Brnicki and Sven Bodo Schultz. That is in the Array 19 uh, uh, workshop, Array workshop proceedings. On the second page of that, except where, except for the bad break, there is a implementation of the the uh, native APL for uh, computational neural networks model uh, that is about ten lines of code. I'm not sure. It was, anyway, that's on that's on page sixty nine. Sorry, page sixty nine. It's mostly on page seventy. And what I'm trying to do is get that to when I get that to the point where where it compiles, I'll, I'll ship that. I'll, I'll 
I'll be happy with the current state of, of Apex. But th this is in Dialog APL, right? This is not that's Dialog APL. Sharp APL. We wrote this. We wrote this for the 2019 conference, and we'll certainly include this uh, all the show links and everything. So if people want to go back and look at these papers, there'll be easy links to go to, and they can they can refer to the page numbers you've, you've mentioned. Okay, and uh, and the other thing is uh, IBM Research and uh, TJ Watson in New York, they have a a uh, one of their quantum computing toys. Uh, well, an expensive toy. <laughs> uh, you can get at you can get at it, and they have. I think we just need, if look there's something called quiz quiz kit. I think is what it's called. Anyway, it's worthy. It's worthy of a look because if you look at the way they're programming quantum computers, it has the same stupidity as as uh, CUDA and PyTorch and stuff. Of oh, it's very crude. Let's do it all from the scalar world, even though even though they're talking arrays, they're built on Shaolong is all wrong. And I think I think we can, you know, one of the ways, one of the nice things about Apex is the back, it's fairly well isolated. So the back end is is a separate, in this case, separate namespace currently. Um, and it's possible to target new new languages fairly quickly. I had a I had a kid working for me last summer. Now he's a bright kid uh, named Holden Holden Hoover, and he's uh, he wrote a a Julia backend for for Apex. Now uh, I think he's 14 years old now, so he's <laughs> he, he got a good he's got a good start on that good start on it. So writing a uh, a tensor, you know, backends that that feed into TensorFlow, or oh, actually we do that already, but um, a backend that would generate um, appropriate calls to uh, an AI machine might work. Thank you, Robert. Uh, I think we need to wrap up at this point. And also, I just like to mention. Uh, one thing, uh, Rodrigo's name came up earlier in the conversation. He used to do all the transcriptions. Now it's Sanjay and Igor are the ones that uh, do the transcriptions. So I'd like a shout out to Sanjay and Igor for doing transcriptions. And in this particular episode, the transcri transcriptions may be a little late. We're recording later than we normally would, so but they'll be there. It's just maybe a bit late. So that's uh, Arraycast. Contact at Arraycast.com. Yeah, obviously, thanks to both of them. It's uh, a huge amount of work. And it's my fault, this this recording, that they're going to be a bit late because of uh, schedule differences. But yeah, once again, uh, thank you so much to uh, Robert for coming on. Uh, we might have to have you back in the future so that you and Marshall can continue to uh, play uh, play ping pong. Um, but with that, we will say happy array programming. Happy array programming. programming.